Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin. I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of fungi. With us today is Ryan Jacobs. Ryan is deputy editor at Pacific Standard and author of The Truffle Underground, a tale of mystery, mayhem, and manipulation in the shadowy market of the world's most expensive fungus. Ryan, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, man. Yeah, so in the first part of this episode, I want to focus exclusively on your book, The Truffle Underground, because mm-hmm. there's so much that I was completely unaware of before I read it, and it, it really reads like a gripping mystery novel, even though it talks about the real way that truffles are procured. Um, and then yeah. in the second half, we can talk about fungi more broadly and how fungi may impact the future um, and things of that sort. But first, I think you know a good place to start might just be for our listeners sort of describing the process that goes into procuring truffles you know starting from the hunt all the way to where they appear on the table yeah so in order to find a truffle you need a a dog um sort of an expertly trained one at that um so they grow, they grow underneath the ground. Um, so really, the only way to find them is by by using one of these animals. Um, and so they grow sort of mostly in in France and Italy. That's where the two most prized sort of truffles come from. Um, the French being the black winter truffle, and the Italian being the um, the white truffle or the Alba truffle is somehow it's sometimes referred to as that um but in italy uh especially they grow um in sort of oak and hazelnut forests um on very steep uh terrain and a lot of these guys will go out at dusk or dawn um with their dogs by themselves um sort of going up and down the mountain searching for these things and you might go out for hours and only find one um you might go out for hours and only uh basically find nothing Mm -hmm. um so they're very scarce um and it's just really time consuming to do this kind of work um and it's fiercely competitive that's why they go out um alone um but if you do find a, a truffle Um, at that point you sort of get into your car, um, and find the nearest, uh, middleman or traders is, is what they call them in, in Italy. And he proceeds to sort of, uh, try to haggle you down from your asking price. Um, these things are really expensive. The, the white truffle costs about 6,000 euro per kilo. Um, and the black winter truffle is about um, a thousand euro or a little bit more than that sometimes on the commercial market. So this guy, after you spent like your whole morning trying to find this thing, has sort of the audacity to be like, no, I'm not going to pay that, pay the the real market price. Um, so that guy um, takes the truffle. And if he can, he either sells it to a truffle company. Um, There are some big ones in both France and Italy. Uh, And then that company, um, you know, it will sit in cold storage 
uh, for a day or two, but they're extremely perishable. Right. Um, so you have you have to get them to the restaurant usually, um, you know, in less than ten days. So that so that company will then broker a deal with a a restaurant chef, um, maybe in Los Angeles, maybe in New York. Um, certainly, probably a Michelin star uh, place. Um, you don't, you know, find these things very often at a, you know, just sort of a regular restaurant. Um, right. Yeah, I had never yeah. personally had a truffle, at least to my knowledge, until last night when I was preparing for this. So I, <laughs> I looked for any restaurant in LA near me that served truffles, and there was only one in a reasonable driving distance, which was Margot. And so I had this truffle meal this like truffle pasta with black uh-huh. truffles and i i asked them where they were sourced from and the guy was like uh i'm not really sure i think it's from northern italy like, like yeah. i'm like i'm sensing a little truffle underground business going on here but yeah. w- one thing i was i was amazed by is how well flavorful but in a subtle refined way they are compared to like truffle oil stuff i've had in the past like like, I never really liked truffle fries at Umami that much because it just felt, like, a little too overpowering. But the, right. the real truffles that are shaved, like, I just ate one without any pasta just to see what it tasted like. And it's it's a very sort of subtle, refined taste that, that was yeah. – I was expecting to be disappointed, and I wasn't disappointed. Yeah. Yeah, The I mean, the white truffle, for me, at least, um, the, you were probably eating black. Yeah, uh, they were black. Truffle. Black diamonds, um, as they call them. <laughs> right. Um, so, but the white truffle for me is really just like a, a spectacular thing. Um, I did my best to sort of put the experience into words, but there's something about it that's really you you can't uh, you can't describe. Like, yeah, it tastes like earth, and it tastes like garlic, and it tastes like um, you know, sort of cold mountain air, but, mm-hmm. um, other than that, there's just like this special quality that no one can really put their, their finger on. Um, yeah, I one mean, of the, I was going to say one of the amazing things to me just about truffles are how many different species are working together to procure this one item. It's like you have the oak trees that sort of help develop the fungi and then you have these dogs or pigs hunting with the humans and then all these humans are running around doing all this crazy stuff to get it to the table in less than five days i mean it's amazing the amount of effort that just goes into this one one ingredient on a restaurant's list yeah no it really is i mean i think i in the book i think i say it's like sort of a a testament to the wonder of of human civilization that we actually Mm. even care enough um, to not only try to grow these things, but to, to try to find these things and then actually um, take on the challenge of getting them to market in time before they sort of rot uh, wherever they may be. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It's kind of a crazy um, thing. Yeah, and maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about the dangers that go into truffle hunting. Because I never would have expected that there would be so much danger in this sort of trade. Yeah. So in in France, in southeastern France, um, 
they they cultivate the black winter truffle the the latin name is um tuber melanosporum um and so they they cultivate it but it's not highly commercial um so you might plant like a hundred or two hundred trees and only have a few trees out of that group that end up fruiting um underneath the ground and it takes years um to have a productive grove you might not see like true productivity from your oak grove or a decade um is about when if it is going to work um that's when you'll see them and so guys spend their whole you know good portions of their lives um and their fathers and their grandfathers have been in the business as well and so they're very um you know, sort of proud of these groves, especially the productive ones, because um, it just takes a lot of work. Uh, you know, you need to prune the trees. Uh, you need you need to irrigate. Um, you need to take all kinds of precautions, because, like, really, if there's not enough rain or the, the temperature is wrong, um, these things kind of just don't end up working. Um, right, so, so there's a lot, lot of uh, business dangers and... with going into truffles. I'm also curious about like the physical dangers and threats that the 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 uh, hunters and the dogs and even the middlemen face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so like you have these guys who are putting all this work in, and then um, what happens in southeastern France is during the middle of the night, there are these sort of armed gangs of guys who go in with trained dogs of their own uh, and go through your property uh, searching for truffles and basically like turn something that you've been working on for decades into like an archeological uh, excavation site. Mm. Uh, and they're often, um, you know, these are not nice guys. So they, uh, so the farmers have gone out with their guns and started patrolling their groves but oftentimes what happens is the thieves will you know throw rocks at the at the farmers uh, sometimes they'll fire warning shots in the sky um, you know it's really dark and cold so there's like flashlights going you know every which way while they're running through these groves um, and so there's a lot of people that are really fearful of of these thieves um, and there's a detective actually that I met with in France whose sole job is to basically like track truffle thieves. Um, and so what happened in, in 2010 was there was this uh, farmer by the name of Laurent uh, Rambau and he and his family had been cultivating truffles and um, he was like everyone else that that season was worried about um, about thefts um and so he went out one night uh with his gun and um you know he saw someone in his grove that shouldn't have been there he thought that the guy was armed um he didn't really uh take the time to consider whether he was or he wasn't and he he pulled the trigger twice of his shotgun and the truffle thief ended up uh dead in the grove so that's when, uh, that's when, um, like the authorities started to take this a little bit more seriously than they were. Um, right, because so up now, until then it had just been like muggings and dog poisonings, right? That was like the first yeah. big murder. 
Yeah. And um, so, so now he basically sends, he is a very like sort of highly advanced, I mean, I wouldn't say it's highly advanced, but he has a surveillance system and map that he sets up each season. He's in constant communication with all the truffle farmers in that area. He tries to figure out which groves are going to be the most productive and will set up um, like surveillance cameras uh, to try to figure out who these guys are. The problem is um, a lot of them are using like teenagers um, hmm. to actually do the work. And it's like difficult to figure out who is plotting the heist because um, just as in the United States, there's like, um, you know, leniency for minors. So it's kind of hard to, to get information about like who is actually planning and ordering the, the heist, so to speak. Um, right. Plus if they get convicted, it's not that serious of a crime that would warrant long jail time or right. anything like and that. And so, so that's what's happening in France. Um, Italy has a whole set of its own, of its own problems, uh, with truffle crime. Um, that being, um, you have guys who are stealing other people's truffle dogs, um, mm. and sometimes, uh, basically smuggling them out of the area for use in, in other regions. So it's like, it's yeah. really hard. Um, I was amazed that, so these truffle dogs, they're so valued that they put microchips in the dogs so they can track them. Yeah. I'm surprised that they're not able to find the dogs more often through that tracking mechanism. Is it just because they don't have the right, the law enforcement doesn't have, you know, up-to-date equipment or it seems like that would be a good solution. Yeah. Yeah, it is surprising. Um, so they're microchipping a lot of the dogs. Not all the dogs are getting microchipped. But the, I think the issue is that one, um, the forestry guard, who are the main guys who look to investigate this crime, are not, um, you know, <laughs> the most organized uh, people. Right. Uh, it's like, uh, I guess, the best example of what it would be here is like um sort of like the national park uh like if you like the dmv sure (laughs) yeah yeah it's like uh yeah it's like a so and the other problem is um what you'll do is if you're if you're stealing these dogs you're not you're not going to take them to a veterinarian you're not going to take them to a place where there are regular checks of microchips you're gonna sort of like avoid um any brushes with um uh you know someone Mm -hmm. checking microchips if that makes sense so i think that's often what's happening they're they're going you're you'll have there was a guy um who had three of his truffle dogs stolen one year and then a, a couple of years later he had another set of three stolen um and they're expensive dogs the lagoda romagnolos can be like Six thousand euros, um, wow. so it's not like a cheap, uh, cheap investment. And also, you've put in all the time, um, you know, actually training them. And then you, of course, have developed this like special relationship with them as well that you're losing. Right. Um, and then the other, the other brutal thing that happens in Italy is you don't want um, your sort of rival truffle hunters 
one to know where you're going in the forest but um more importantly like to go in the area that um that you like um so often what people will do um is leave sort of booby traps um it might be um meatballs with shards of glass it might be Mars Capone with uh, strychnine, which is a colorless, odorless toxin that they use to get rid of ro- uh, gophers and, mm. and rats and that in agricultural land. Um, or it might be, you know, uh, for a while in the in the 1970s, they were shrinking down sponges to get and putting them in in food, so the dog would eat it and then like die uh, later wow. from. from because he would he wouldn't eat he was just like lethargic and um you know basically slowly dying from starvation so this has been a problem um for a long time and uh the reason that they do it is 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 just basic um economic competition and greed sabotage Um, it's just like yeah it's just a brutal brutal way to sabotage your uh economic competitor yeah, yeah I, always, I always thought the laws should be more severe for killing dogs. Like, yeah. I can understand if you have somewhat lenient laws when it comes to, like, livestock, like animals we typically eat, but dogs are our best companion. So I'm always amazed that there's, like, such lenient laws, even when, you know, there was a case a couple of years ago where these kids, like, filmed themselves, like, pushing their bulldog down the stairs and standing yeah. on it, and the dog ended up dying, and these kids got, like, a slap on the wrist, like a fine, like they got no jail time. And so it seems, it seems amazing that it's so lenient. I guess one question I have for you, Ryan, is how much of the shadiness of the truffle business is specific to Europe and kind of how like old school, you know, European haggling and kind of free flowing, like, Oh, anyone sort of owns the forest. Like how much of it is specific to the way that Europe operates versus being specific to the truffle industry itself like in the truffle mm-hmm. industry in the u.s would it be anywhere near as shady as it is in europe like what's your what's your thought there yeah i think it, it i think it has a degree of shadiness um i think that you're never gonna find like the sort of vaudevillian european crime that you uh that you find there in in the united states but what you find in the u.s is actually um is pretty serious as well because there's 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 deceptive marketing um mm-hmm. and uh certainly mislabeling um so what was happening in the 1990s was um there were people who had found this um chinese truffle which goes uh, grows in the sichuan province in china um, and it looks almost identical to the black winter truffle, um, mm. but it doesn't cost the same. It doesn't, you know, smell the same. It doesn't taste the same. It's basically like one guy told me that it basically tastes like a, a battered tennis ball. Um, <laughs> but uh, basically what they were doing was uh, they were mixing these things in with black winter truffle sort of cutting like flour into into uh cocaine and then they were doing major international shipments to the u.s um and to other countries with this stuff 
And so basically you were paying at that time if you were at a, at a nice restaurant in L.A. or New York, you were most likely eating basically like a worthless uh, thing and paying a, a shit ton of, of money for it. Right. Um, and, and now uh, they've sort of figured out in Italy they've been having another problem with the white truffle. So there are these, um, there are these, uh, truffles that grow in the sands of Tunisia and some of the other North African countries. Um, and so, and they kind of resemble white truffles, but not really. They more resemble this like smaller white truffle, which is called the Bianchetto. And so they're doing much the same thing. Um, and on the Osti market, which is sort of a famed market near near Alba for truffles, they discovered that um, a lot of the truffles were not actually from uh, uh, Piemonte, which is like the most renowned region there for white truffles. Right. Um, but more importantly, they found that like some of them were not even the the same species. Um, so you were basically like just eating like something that had nothing to do with what you were being told you were eating um right so and, that kind of- and a lot of like what makes a truffle taste good or bad at least from my research is that it's based on like the conditions of the soil the the air just the whole environment of where it's from and you know places like tunisia are a lot drier so they don't have they don't you know produce as good tasting truffles and places like china often have a lot of pollution like both air pollution and soil pollution so when you're eating this truffle, which, you know, typically is something that's very nutrient dense, anti-inflammatory, like lots of benefits for eating that, which is why we like to eat it. You're actually also consuming the toxins if it was grown in an area that has lots of pollution. Um, so it's, it does kind of negate the benefits when you have a truffle that's grown from one of these less, less ideal regions. Yeah. And the, the other thing that, that goes on in China, which explains some of why they don't taste so good, is they do not, um, they grow in such quantities that the guys that who go out and forage them don't use dogs. They actually use rakes to pull them up. Um, mm. So the thing about that, though, is if you're just like raking or digging for these things, um, you're going to pull up a bunch of things uh, or a bunch of truffles that are not like ready to be eaten. So a lot of the, you know, a lot of the difference in smell and flavor for the Chinese truffle um, comes from the fact that it's just not ready. Hmm. Um, I mean, that and it's a totally different species um, that is just not well regarded, at least in the culinary world. When you rake and dig up like that, don't you also disrupt the whole mycelial network? And then in the future, they might not even be able to grow there as well either. Is that yeah? That's right? that's definitely true, and people get pissed off, especially in Italy. If you because there are guys in in Italy that sometimes try to go in with uh, shovels mm-hmm. uh, to look for for the summer truffles, which grow a little bit closer to the surface of the soil, um, and people get really pissed off. <laughs> like truffle yeah. hunters who have been yeah. in the business for a long time are like dude, you're completely destroying the symbiosis um, that the that the fun, fungi have found with the with the host tree's roots, which takes a long time, sometimes up to like 30 years or more um, to develop. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating that 
you know, as opposed to shovels, when you have dogs or pigs or another animal with you, they will only smell out the truffles that are ready to be eaten. It's like they right. just naturally like can sense that the smell of it is like right. And I also find it interesting that in the winter when it's covered with snow, they're actually better able to smell out the ripe truffles because they're not being distracted by all the other scents on the on, right. above the, the, the forest floor. It's yeah, really it's interesting of... that yeah. truffles have, they've developed evolutionarily that they're, so they undergo like um, mycophagy, which means they totally rely on animals to eat them. So they, mm. you know, that's their whole purpose is to smell good and taste good. It's interesting that they've just been so successful, you know, that way. And so there's scarce, every everything wants to eat them. Squirrels want to eat them. Like pigs want yeah. to eat them so it's it's hard to even use pigs is that right ryan i've i've read that it's if you use pigs they'll pretty much just eat them instead of yeah like dogs <laughs> dogs will sniff them out but pigs will sniff them out and then eat them right yeah, pigs are looking absolutely. out for number one they don't care about <laughs> us that much yeah they phased out so people always say hey like tell me about the pigs and i'm like guys the we've been using dogs for a while now um so what happened um is like the it you're exactly right the pigs were eating the truffles so hunters um especially in france were like sort of wrestling with their pigs to get these uh truffles out of the pigs mouths. and they're like at one point they were just like oh this is not worth it like like let's just do dogs and wasn't Um, it like goats or sheeps that have also sometimes been used i mean there is there's one i think in the book there was one guy who told me that uh, his, I, I think his friend's goats were like hanging out um, underneath a, a certain oak tree and they later went back there um, with the truffle dogs and just found a, a, a huge number of truffles. So they were kind of wow. interested in that area. But the, the thing is, you're right, um, the truffle is sort of has developed evolutionarily um, it wants to be found. Um, it has to be found. It's, its existence depends on being found because in, in, with, with a regular, um, with a regular fungus, you, um, sort of spread, uh, by wind dispersal. Um, your spores sort of blow in the wind to another area of the forest and start growing there. But with the truffle, it's buried beneath the ground, so there's no possibility of wind dispersal. And and the spores grow in, in the center of the, the fungus. Um, so in order to get the spores out, uh, you know, you have to you have to dig it up, you have to eat it, you have to ingest it. Uh, usually it's like if this is just happening in the wild, it's like a squirrel or... Uh, you know, a wild pig or whatever it might be, any any forest creature that's interested in this thing. And then it has to be, you know, the spores have to be dispersed. Um, and that's the only way that it has a chance of, of sort of growing in another place. Yeah, it's amazing how many beings are drawn to this one, this one uh, species of mushroom. And it's also interesting to think of how you can sort of swap out different animals depending on like, you know, what animals you have around. 
Like I, I saw this thing recently where before they used dogs as shepherds, they actually, some people used baboons and oftentimes <laughs> really? they would see a baboon riding one of the larger goats back after a long day <laughs> of grazing. And so I find it amusing to think of like baboons working with like truffle dogs or goats to like <laughs> find because <laughs> it's just something that connects like all of us species and you know when you think about what fungi are and how they're related to mammals and other species they we split off from them literally billions of years ago like 2.4 billion years ago is the oldest mushroom that we found in the archaeological record and we are similar to fungi in the sense that we take in oxygen we give out carbon dioxide and you know some people have even said as far as like we are like a very complex type of fungi like we sort of like the fungi sort of are the gateway to life in a sense and if you look at the cellular level the cellular structure of our cells is very similar to the structure of the mycelial network yeah, it's mm. closer to fungi than it is to plants and i believe maybe this is wrong but i i believe i heard somewhere that fungi are closer to human or to animals than they are to plants which is because yeah. they're like the well yeah because plants take in oxygen and and uh or take in co2 and give out oxygen so in that mm. sense like we're much more close to fungi yeah. than we are to plants and they were the first organisms on land. That was one of the most mind-blowing yeah. things I figured out because they had they can create these chemicals that would digest stone, which, you know, earth was really just water and stone before we had any land animals. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when they could digest rock, they eventually made food for algae to come up a little bit and then we had plants and then eventually over millions or even billions of years we had um soil created and then that just spawned right. everything so they're like it's like the mother of all land creatures pretty much yeah super interesting yeah so i, I want to talk about fungi more more broadly but first let's let's finish out the the book discussion so i wanted to get your thoughts ryan on how you see the future of the truffle trade specifically mm -hmm. because obviously demand is changing supply is changing the rules are changing the ways of detecting um, missteps are, are changing so if you were to project how you think the truffle industry is going to evolve in the next like 10 or 20 years what would be your predictions um that's a really good question i think that in terms of i would hope that there would be some new regulations or new laws that um, regulate the, the business a little bit better than it has been. Um, and I hope that just in general, I think consumer awareness um, will sort of rise. Like I think you'll have just smarter consumers who are more willing to ask questions not just because of the, the book, but just because I think consumers in general now are becoming smarter um, mm -hmm. about what they choose to buy and eat. Um, so I think that consumer awareness will rise. Hopefully there will be some new regulations. I think the third thing that um, will happen with the truffle industry is that I hope that um, the truffle cultivation 
especially with the black winter truffle becomes a little bit uh, more successful than it has been. It's sort of, it, it was really high um, in France at like a thousand tons in the early 1900s. And now we're doing only like 30 or 40 tons a season there. Hmm. And I think um, I would love to see the yields sort of increase. I don't know that they will. I think um, one of the, the biggest challenges uh, to that will be climate change. Right. Um, have rising temperatures because you have less summer precipitation which is what these they, these things need to grow um, you might see the sort of growing areas move north and some of them already have so southeast used to be southeastern France used to be a big um, truffle player but now we're seeing areas further north uh, even in the northwest are starting to have really successful truffle cultivation. Um, and how much of that I, do you think is due to the changing temperatures versus maybe degrading the soil in the areas where historically has been the best places to truffle hunt? Because it seems like maybe, you know, like you said, the truffles want to get eaten so they can spread their spores. But it seems like what's happening is people are going in, digging out all these truffles and then sending them elsewhere. So I wonder if if that has any role in the you know historic areas not being as as fertile as the you know what is what we're seeing now with more northern areas. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the issues, especially in in Italy. You have a lot of sort of development in areas that were once just like wild forest. So like mm. if you develop over a forest that you know had a great existing relationship with these. Um, organisms you, you know like you're not I the they only grow in these like sort of very special areas so if you destroy that ecosystem they're not gonna grow there um, but I I also think you're right probably there has been some level of um, degradation of the environment just from you know heavy industry in that um, that's a good you know, right. I mean, we. I mean, last uh, episode that we had on this podcast was about agriculture, and one of the big subtopics there was the soil, and how mm -hmm. the traditional agricultural practices are that you plow the fields, which then result in erosion, like the soil gets blown away, and you're also a lot of times breaking up the mycelial network, and the mycelial network is what holds the soil together. It's also what stores, stores carbon so that in rough times, they can use some of that carbon to give nutrients to plants. And, you know, we're basically destroying soil systematically through the way agriculture is typically done. And then we have to move on to new soil, new areas, because we've ruined the areas that we've had uh, in the past. So it, yeah. it, it does seem like this speaks to just a larger question around what are the right practices for, you know, procuring food where we can still maintain the integrity of the soil and our farmland and, you know, preserve it yeah. for future generations. I think that there are a lot of Italians that are, especially in northern Italy, who are not happy with some of the so they're planting a lot of Nebi Nebbiolo vineyards in areas where guys were once um, going out in the forest to, to hunt for these things. 
and once you once you plant a vineyard like that the likelihood that you're going to have um truffles there is is very small and you you obviously can't go on to private property to, to hunt these mm-hmm. things anyway the other thing mm-hmm. that i'll that i'll say about the future of the industry um is that i i will be very shocked and surprised if we ever figure out how to cultivate the white truffle um which is so mm-hmm. far kind of defied um scientific understanding um what we about don't. like lab grown? Like it seems like it might be possible to do a lot. No, it's impossible. Justin's shaking his head. <laughs> they, I mean, there there are truffle scientists I know that have tried to cultivate. Like, there's just a few mushroom species that are so difficult to grow. Like tr- truffles are one of them that are hard to grow in the lab. Huh. Some are super easy, like portobellas, like oyster mushrooms, like the ones you see in the grocery store. Those are all just grown from right. little wood chip bags essentially yeah but it's, when it's... you're dealing with some that need to be in the soil underground being in this symbiotic relationship with roots in a very specific way mm-hmm. i think that's where the difficulty comes from um, you, yeah, could, they... you could talk more about it ryan yeah no i mean you're exactly right they know how to inoculate the trees the basically the inoculate tree saplings with um, you know, the fungal matter and, and they, they can get the symbiosis with the, with, you know, young trees to start. But what happens is when it actually comes time for them to fruit, um, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. (laughs) Uh, Mm. and they're not, and they're not sure why I, I talked to the sort of chief, um, you know, most expert truffle scientists, one of the most expert truffle scientists in the world and certainly in the country um that's jim trappy and he said you know like as far as he knows you know people have gotten these things to to go on the um to go on the roots but have not had any success at all with actually getting them to to fruit into the things that we we eat because these these the structures underground um you know are they're referred to as a ectomycorrhizal uh, fungi, which means they need to first establish the relationship with the roots and then sort of grow their filaments spread. Um, and then like eventually one night, um, usually you'll have a bunch of rain and the, the sort of final step of that process, what actually causes that, uh, um, those, uh, uh, mycelium, you know, mycelium filaments, filaments to to turn into an actual truffle. Like they don't, they just don't understand that process. Hmm. The other thing about the white truffle is um, they think it's sapotropic, which means that it it needs the tree, um, the symbiosis with the tree for part of its life cycle, um, but then like it it starts to rely on other organisms in the forest. Um, so like it might establish some symbiosis with like a bush or like some other kind of plant that's, that's near the tree. And what's really strange is I, and I'm sure you guys know some of this, um, is there are these huge, uh, like you were talking about, uh, networks of my, mycelium right um, it's 30 percent of all soil is fungal matter yeah which most people they don't run, realize they, 
they basically run under the forest like like almost a cable network um and so they communicate actually trees um and fungus in one part of the forest can sort of communicate with each other and i know that sounds ridiculous but like if one tree really needs um certain kind of nutrients or water you can actually like um you'll see that essentially they like um fungus from another part of the forest they think is like you know sending that stuff over to that tree i mean it's not as simple as that um but it's like really uh kind of crazy to imagine these things underground um they're just like vast networks um yeah there's this book called uh the hidden life of trees i believe it was and they they talk about this and the author mentions how there's usually like this big mature tree that will be able to send its resources through mycelial networks to trees that are maybe struggling to trees that have even fallen over potentially and it'll send start sending nutrients um over that way i don't think anyone really understands yet how that truly happens and how they sense all of that but it's just it's mind-blowing to know that it does happen it's like it's like mycelial networks and fungi are sort of the the nervous system of forests or even just yeah, soil or, in general. Or like I've yeah. heard Paul Stamets call it the natural internet, like the yes. way the internet <laughs> talks to itself. I've also yeah, heard yeah. him call it the immune system of nature or yeah. like the gateway drug to life. <laughs> all, because basically they've, if you just, you know, take something that you really would not like to have in the environment, like an oil spill They've done studies where they'll put, you know, traditional, you know, treatments on it and then they'll try it with fungi. And not only did the fungi eat up the oil that would otherwise be toxic, but they actually create this fertile ground that will then, you know, uh, you know, plants will will arise and, you know, bees will come and flowers will come. And it basically just creates the best, you know, this bed of life. Um it's just it's, like the first thing that that's there. It's the one. It's almost like the alchemist of nature, where it can break down these petroleum products, for example, like you right. just said, and then convert them into simple sugars. And then they create a fruiting body that bugs come on. And it's it's just a, it's the start of something that can totally restore a broken system. And that's kind of what blows my mind about some of this stuff and how it can be used for environmental cleanup, oil spills. I've even seen some people doing research related to nuclear waste. So if there's like a little bit of nuclear or radiation um, residue in the soil, like there is a Mm. lot of in East Tennessee, for example, because of all the Manhattan Project stuff, Um, they can use uh, fungi or bacteria, for example, to um, digest and then convert those dangerous uh, molecules into something that's mm. a little bit more uh, usable to nature. That's very relevant for our future of nuclear episode. <laughs> yeah, but I it, think it's still in the early stages of that. But right. um, I mean, one of the things that's amazing to me is how controversial it still is to consider nature truly intelligent. Like most people just think of nature as being this dumb process of like, oh yeah, there's some trees, like it's just dirt, like 
it's what are you talking about like mycelial network of intelligence like this is just some dirt right and that's like the response that so many people have but if someone and yet the person saying this is an intelligent being who came about through the same exact process as these mm -hmm. trees and these mycelia so it seems uh very hypocritical to say like how can this other thing be intelligent like me even though we both came from the same process and i have no way of of really knowing what it's like to experience life as this other being unless maybe i eat a little of psilocybin and then i get a glimpse into yeah. what that world is like <laughs> now ryan were you at all interested in fungi before you set out on this investigative journalistic expedition um you know truthfully at the beginning i was i didn't even know what a truffle was um like i i mean i knew that it was like a nice thing that that people ate but i didn't really and i knew that it, it was sort of a mushroom um or a fungus but i i didn't know much more than that um and i the reason that i became so interested in it was all the the crime mm -hmm. um that's what sort of drew me into the story um but once i started talking to my ecologists um uh, like james trappy and paul thomas and, and some of the, these other, other guys um i i got really fascinated with the science of it um and i ended up writing uh, like a huge science chapter that got uh, condensed uh, down just because um, I got a little bit away from the sort of crime of it because I got mm -hmm. so fascinated by mm -hmm. the, the science. And one of the things that I was fascinated by, like I said, was was this problem with the white truffle and, and the fact that like we have figured out, you know, so much about the world around us and like also just technology in general that it, it sort of blew my mind um, that, you know, we can't cultivate this, this, it, what seems like a simple thing is just like one of the most complicated problems. Uh, um, and, and I think uh, my ecologist will tell you, we, we really don't know that much still um, I think it's one of the most understudied uh, things is is fungus. We we don't know much about these things. Um, right. I mean, there's more there's more receptors in the mycelial network than there is in the human brain, so it's actually more complex than any individual human brain. So, and you know, we can't do a full brain emulation right now. So it is quite a complex uh, ecosystem, even if it seems you know, like, oh, it's just fungus. Like, why can't we replicate this or cultivate this? So I'd like to talk a little bit more about how fungi can play a role in climate change, because, you know, this, this podcast is really focused on the future. And I think that's one of the big factors in how all of this plays out is how we, you know, use fungi when it comes to climate change. And, you know, one of the things that I, I think is the big benefit of fungi as opposed to other solutions is that it's totally natural. So whereas we have typical pesticides that we'll use, Paul Stamets has developed fungi that basically attract termites 
or they attract ants and then they turn them into zombie ants and kill them, but it's totally harmless to humans. So rather than just like spraying poison that's pretty much harmful to everyone, even if it's not quite you know deadly for, for bigger beings like ourselves, it still is harmful. And if you can switch to more natural approaches like using fungi, it's just a lot better for the environment. And I think Paul Stamets also was able to sort of help the bee colony collapse problem to that end. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, with the bee colonies, um, I, I read, I was listening to another podcast about that. And I mean, if you think about human health and how nutrition has changed and how we pretty much get, you know, all of our uh, nutrients from like a few key things like corn, wheat, like the variety in most people's diet is has just plummeted and the actual nutritional value has plummeted uh the same thing could be said for bees so Mm. when they're only feeding on or they're only getting pollen from soy and corn they don't have a nice balanced diet they're they're really susceptible to viruses and that's where a lot of these these bee colony collapse issues are supposedly coming from so it like you said paul stamets created this like myco honey was it is that what he called it anyways yeah um, it's like honey that has a little bit of mycelial like woven into it so then when the bees drink mm -hmm. it up then they get the the immune protection benefits yeah it's just really interesting how every i mean bees get a they have a symbiotic like health relationship with uh fungi humans there's a lot of Mm -hmm. different um medicinal mushrooms I'm curious, uh, Ryan, did you find any other species of mushrooms in this whole research journey that sort of fascinated you? Like, for example, like for me, a lion's mane mushroom is lion's pretty mane interesting. Is, yeah. The the one that is, you know, that supposedly helps with like brain function. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, I I actually got on to the story because of porcini mushrooms, which I think are delicious. Um. Mm-hmm. And there are these guys um, in Germany, these like poachers that were like at large in a in a German forest. And I was like, oh, that's that's kind of strange. Like, why would people be at large? Like, how does a porcini forager come to be at large? Yeah. Like all like expert porcini forager. And I was like, is this something that goes on in the porcini business? And he was like, no, but you should look into to truffles. Um, mm. But I, I honestly was so, I dug so deeply into the, the truffle business that I, I don't think if you presented me with like the most fascinating uh, other fungi, I would have like even like looked up from my my books. <laughs> uh, what about now though? Now that you've you've yeah, got the books now, published, yeah. Now I would love to. Um, I would love to go back to some of the mycologists that I spoke to and asked them like what in mycology right now is like fascinating you and it seemed to me that uh, Dr. Thomas was um, fascinated by the the very thing that you guys are discussing which is these huge networks underground and and the fact that we don't really understand how they work Um, and I Mm -hmm. think that that 
if we are going to be able to cultivate a white truffle, like I think we're going to need to to know more about that because what they're finding is uh, you can't really replicate it in a laboratory because you have no idea what other organisms it's in symbiosis with because of these these strange networks that are underneath the ground. Yeah, and the, the symbiosis could go back like very far you know, throughout our development as early humans, you know, there's the stoned ape theory, but there's also, which I don't fully believe in maybe, maybe, maybe give yeah. the summary. So the, the stoned ape theory is, is an explanation for why our brains doubled in size and, you know, processing power in a relatively short time on the evolutionary scale. And the hypothesis is that by eating these mushrooms, magic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, as hunters were tracking their prey, you know, basically it's like, okay, you're hunting some like antelope or whatever, some sort of animal and it poops. And then the poop will oftentimes grow this like cubensis mushrooms or some sort of psychedelic mushroom. And then people eat that. And the effect that it has is it allows for mapping of new neurological pathways. So if you, and you can actually, you know, Google an image of a brain scan of someone who is not on psychedelic mushrooms and someone who is on psychedelic mushrooms and the amount of neural pathways just explodes. And the idea is that it allowed for us to rapidly develop our brains. Um, But the reason why I am a little hesitant about it is just because it seems like you know, how can your brain be passed down to the next generation if something that happens like in your own life? So the theory that's more resonant, that more resonant with me is that it was pivotal in our development of language. So when you because language is something that's just passed down from a society from one generation to the next. And if you are taking psychedelic mushrooms, you have a, a new response to fear which is why psychedelic mushrooms are so effective in treating people with PTSD. Like you sort of view the thing that you were most afraid of in a brand new way. And it also creates empathy because you're able to sort of understand things from another perspective. Like you can see like the walls between you and the other are broken down. It's like, Oh, we're just the same thing. Exactly. And those are very real leadership skills. Like if you're someone fighting on the savannah for your life every day with your small band of humans and all of a sudden you have a new perspective on fear and you have empathy for all beings, you're going to be a kick-ass leader and you're probably going to be better able to communicate with others. And that may have been, you know, played a big role in the development of language and and culture and society. Mm -hmm. There's a really, I mean, fungi in general are so interesting because it seems like their whole existence is based on symbiotic relationships. So with the truffles, the symbiotic relationship is one with the plants that it's exchanging nutrients with, but also with all of the animals that will eat it and uh, reproduce or and uh, spread the spores. And then mm-hmm. with other things like the um, the mushroom, no, I mean, I have a hard time wrapping my head around what the uh, symbiotic relationship is. Like, what is the purpose of this psychedelic state that it can give people? Is it, is it actually something like spiritual? Like, I don't really know anything. 
I mean, it's, the, it's really interesting to think about. Yeah, I'm interested to hear Ryan's thoughts, but my own thoughts are that I think of the mycelial network as Mother Earth. Like that really is like, you know, if Mother Earth is sentient, the sentience is manifested in the mycelial network. Like that's the way sort of I think about it. And so when animals eat fungi and when humans eat fungi, you're getting a bit of that Mother Earth uh, essence that Except feels... for the ones that will absolutely kill you. So you don't want to eat all the mushrooms. Right. <laughs> if, but if you have the right one, then it's yeah. just like you sort of, it's almost like you're remembering your ancestral past of before humans and fungi broke out on the evolutionary chain. And you're sort of, you feel this overwhelming sense of interconnectedness to all beings. And like you said, you sort of see that, you know, there's the, the blurred lines between what makes me, me and you, you and, you know, or Alan Watts has called it the organism hyphen environment. Like you cannot really, you can't describe any organism without also describing the environment that it lives because everything right. is interconnected in this web of life. So that web of life becomes super apparent when you're on this mushroom and that must serve some role in, you know, furthering the objectives of, of Mother Earth and making planet Earth hospitable for all beings. Right. But Ryan, I, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on, or on the psychedelic aspect of mushrooms. It's, I know it's just like a few strains of mushrooms that have that effect, but it does seem like a rare window where you can kind of glimpse into what things look like from the mushrooms perspective or from mother earth's perspective. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. I mean, the, the, all of what you said makes uh, perfect sense to me. And I think you put it beautifully. Um, but what I'll say is when I try to explain um, like what eating uh, truffles is like, like I said, it's like sort of an indescribable experience. And the, the sort of closest analogy that I can give um, a lot of times is drugs, psychedelic drugs specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and like I, I, you know, have, you know, uh, consumed truffles and I've also consumed psychedelic mushrooms. Um, so yeah, it's just, I think that that connection, um, sort of to mother earth, as you were saying, or to another age is definitely what's so special actually about both experiences. There's something, um, very primal, I think about, about the experience of eating these things. Um, and it really brings you to uh, a place of connection, not only um, between you and other uh, human beings, but also to nature. Um, and I think that that was the experience, at least for me, is just feeling that, um, you know, trees and birds and all the organisms in the world are like, connected in some way um mm -hmm. even if you know even if those connections are not clearly visible um that's right. sort of like what i don't know why uh, mushrooms make you feel that way but um i think that that in some in some ways it's exactly right i mean we're a huge uh ecosystem um and like you could view the world as sort of like one giant um, organism. Uh, 
You said something really interesting that you not only feel connected to one another, but connected to a different age. Could you expand on that a little bit? That was, yeah, I just I never thought about it like that. Yeah, I mean, you were saying like you get this um, sort of feeling where you're close to nature, you're living among uh, living among nature. Um, you are probably closely depending on other human beings for your survival. Um, mm-hmm. And I just think like the experience of of eating these things brings you to another sort of um, you know primal age where where everyone had to rely on everyone else for their survival, mm. where nature had to produce um, in order for you um, to live, which is, I think, what's really uh, screwed up about the way that we, we live now. Like, those connections are no longer um, so important. You can go to a grocery store and pick up whatever you need. You can, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, buy something. Amazon, the connections between family and nature and like how we move through nature as a human species has completely changed. Um, and I think right. we're experiencing the, the, um, the deep uh, consequences and problems that come from a distance from nature right now as, as you're, mm-hmm. I mean, like with global climate change, like I think that we got so distracted with, um, you know, I mean, it's a hugely complicated issue, but like, I think that at some way, at some, some place along the way, humans got a little bit too, um, far away from valuing the the earth and, uh, the natural systems that support us. Yeah. I feel like part of the reason is that humans are so obsessed with time and like, oh, how much time do I have left? Like, what's going to happen in my life? You know, who cares about future generations? Like, what's going to happen right now? How am I going to put food on the table? When am I going to die? And that's not something that seems to plague any other beings. So I don't know if you meant it that way, Ryan, but when you said that when you eat mushrooms, it's like you're, you're sort of resonating with like this like ageless, you know, uh, paradigm where it's it's not like you're so hyper focused on on time you just sort of do things in the way that feels natural and I think as we think about climate change you know because it is such a multifaceted complex issue I think a good rule of thumb is do what feels intuitively right you know with nature and what feels like a more natural way of doing uh, of agriculture or truffle hunting or or whatever it may be and that is most likely going to be what will you know last for generations and be good for the planet yeah agreed maybe we uh get into the future scenarios yeah let's uh let's do it cool i i guess i can just i'll ask you all right madamore what do you think about the worst case Worst case scenario. My worst case scenario as it relates to truffles, I'll start there, is that we keep moving along the road to faux truffles, like truffle oil and truffle salts and things that are mostly just chemicals and 
bad quality olive oil and some truffle essence and especially in america that does seem somewhat likely because Mm, one thing ryan said in his book that really resonated with me is how in america people eat truffles more for the status symbol than for actually enjoying the taste of them and the experience so that's one thing that worries me as it relates to truffles as it relates to fungi more broadly I would say that, you know, fear of fungi is a concern that I have. A lot of people are just very like, you know, anti-fungal and they just instinctively are afraid of it. And I think that could get in the way of a lot of medications derived from fungi, agricultural practices and pesticides derived from fungi, and especially neurological treatments derived from fungi which can all be hugely beneficial. So my worst case scenario is not capitalizing on the benefits because of our fear of fungi while simultaneously damaging the mycelial network, damaging our soil so that if we push this forward 10, 20, 50 years in the future, we could have a serious food crisis on our hands where the soil has been degraded to such a degree and the population has gone from 7 billion people today to 50 or, or to uh, 10 billion people in 2050 that we will have some mass starvation, we'll have a huge loss of biodiversity, we'll potentially lose a lot of species that we'll never be able to get back. And I think one of the most tragic elements of that would be the loss of the old growth forests like the forests we see in the Pacific Northwest and the forests we see in Northern Italy and France, if those areas continue to be developed and we lose out in that biodiversity, we are seriously at a loss. So that's, that's my worst case scenario. Yeah. And the, the fungal networks in those old growth forests are unreal. I think there's the longest mycelial network in the world is in Oregon. It's like the two biggest miles single or something. organism on planets yeah that's that's nuts uh just to add a little bit of glimmer of hope i just i heard recently that oregon isn't allowing any more single family homes to be developed or something so there's not going to be as much sprawl um i need to fact check that but i'm pretty sure i heard that on a marketplace podcast recently Hmm. anyways so um ryan what do you think about the worst case scenario Uh, yeah i i think i actually agree with a lot of what you said already i I think the worst case scenario for the the trouble industry is that nothing nothing changes um that you know sort of basically the the book has very little effect or consumer awareness has very little effect about about some of what's going on in the business so the worst case scenario is like theft continues um Dogs continue to get poisoned. Uh, dogs continue to get stolen. Um, fraud continues unabated. Um, all these like terrible things that are outlined in the in the book sort of just um, <laughs> don't change at all. Um, but I think connect, connected to that, I, I it does trouble me that most Americans sort of interaction with truffle or truffle product is this, um, synthetic, which 
uh, he mentioned bismethylmethane, which is a petroleum derivative. Um, and it's like not something that you want to be eating. Uh, and I can definitely see the, uh, in a worst case scenario, like that being the only point of connection for um, most Americans uh, to truffle, truffles and, and the truffle business, which is just a really sad, sad mm-hmm. sort of comment on the whole on the whole thing so i hope i hope that doesn't happen but uh we'll see yeah Yeah, your uh, your worst case justin yeah yeah yeah. so my worst case is sort of an expansion of the truffle underground book as a whole because that it seems like this whole book and all the fraud all of the crime is related to the scarcity of truffles but in the worst case what happens when like you said agriculture and soil is so depleted that food itself becomes scarce and a lot of really important resources become scarce it's almost like a a little glimpse into the future of what would happen if important things became scarce there's going to be crime there's going to potentially be um you know dangers involved with regular food or just any other product that is scarce because resources on earth are scarce Mm -hmm. and you know that's that's sort of the worst case is just what what has happened in the brings out the worst in human nature when there are scarce expensive resources that people are fighting over yeah yeah yeah, so that's that's my worst case. It's just sort of a, an expansion of the truffle industry and, and the scarcity of that and what would happen if, if everything became scarce, if food itself became scarce, or water, yeah. for example. That would be a wild, <laughs> a wild <laughs> scenario. Um, yeah, I never even, never even thought of that. Um, but yeah, scarcity is what drives so much of, of crime in general. Um, and I think that climate change is only going to continue to make commodities scarce or at least harder uh, to come by. So I think that, yeah, we, I mean, (laughs) there is a sort of um, crazy worst case scenario where, you know, like the entire, um, you know, human population is just like essentially fighting over resources um well paul stamets has he opens up one of his ted talks where he says that if all the beings on earth had a vote of whether to kick humans off of the planet or whether to keep them what do you think they would vote and he says i believe that vote is happening right now And it is yeah, like, I mean, yeah, if, we're just like a node of Mother Earth in a sense. And Mother Earth, like the cognition of it could be described as the mycelial network. So if we cease to serve Earth's purposes, it is not so far-fetched to think that we might go the way of the dodo. <laughs> it's really, I think if, I mean, honestly, though, if humans just became erased from the world, everything else would thrive. I mean, it would mm-hmm. it would just blow up. Life would just be... There'd be armies know. of baboons on goats riding into <laughs> battle. <laughs> but... Yeah. Should well, we let's, move on let's to, talk uh, about the best case. I'm curious about your best case, then. Best case scenario. Both you guys. Yeah. 
so my best case, humans get wiped out, baboons are roaming wild. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, my, my best case is, obviously, we preserve the old growth forest. We use fungi not only to combat climate change and to improve agriculture, but also to improve our own societies. And I just want to talk about a couple quick studies here because that'll give it more credence. So as far as how we can improve our societies, there was a study with 440,000 prisoners and most of these were violent criminals and they gave them psilocybin mushrooms once. They saw that there was a 27% reduction in crimes overall and an 18% reduction in violent crimes, with, which is you know, quite statistically significant, just from one experience. One so, dose, wow. So as far as the rehabilitative effects for the most problematic people in our society, that has a huge potential. Also preserving the cognition of people as we get older. There have been, there have been cases where people have had hearing loss and they've actually been able to regenerate some of their hearing through taking mushrooms. Also, it's not always psychedelic mushrooms. There have been there was another study with mice using lion's mane where they had these mice with a, a maze. One path led to the food, the other path did not lead to food, and they, you know, very quickly learned which was the right path, but then they injected this neurotoxin into their brain and they were like just couldn't find the right path from then on. But then they gave them lion's mane. And once they took lion's mane, they, they almost completely restored their ability to function neurologically and go to the right path. So I think it has regenerative, regenerative effects where it can help people with PTSD. It can help people as they get older. And I think the biggest benefit is just that it helps us commune with nature so that we can be in lockstep with Mother Earth as we take on the biggest challenges in history. And the final thing I'll say in my best case is, I think it's possible that fungi will play, have a role to play with AI and with creating consciousness that takes part of earthly intelligence and part of machine intelligence. And that that may end up being a key factor in creating the right kind of intelligence that doesn't just have a cold disregard for life, but actually has some of the building blocks of life built into it, that, you know, that could be an important factor when we think about like, you know, what the potential future scenarios would be. So when you say it could play a role in AI, do you mean like we, it, some sort of mycelial machine interface sort of like we have a brain machine interface sort of yeah i mean it could be as simple it, it could be as simple as just uh you know modeling our ai systems after the models of how mycelial networks are organized or it could mm -hmm. be something where we're actually creating like a biological host that also has like ai built into it so these are all very like out there ideas but I guess personally, when I think about the future, there's a few key factors that are really going to determine how things play out on this planet. One of them is climate change and the hospitability of this planet. And I think AI is another big factor. 
And then us destroying ourselves is another big factor. And I really think that fungi play a role and could play a role in all three of those areas. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds um, really interesting. Uh, what do you think, Ryan, for the, your best case? You got paused. Ryan, I think you're on... Uh... Oh, he's back. Hello. Hey. Hey. Sorry, I don't. Uh, there was a call to this phone, so I think it like logged out. Or oh no worries. That's all right. So, what is your best case scenario for the future of fungi? Um. So the best case scenario is um that instead of people just ignoring all of this, we actually pass. Um, some regulations and laws <clears throat> that restrict and limit um, the kinds of illicit activities that are going on in the in the truffle trade. Um, and then I think the other thing is like consumer awareness um, actually, you know, increases um, not just for truffles but for food at large and the food system at large. Um, I think as people become more aware of what they're eating um, and where it's been um, and what kinds of supply chains it's passed through, um, you'll start to see actual change on, on, the, on the sort of corporate uh, and um, sustainable farming end of things. Like I think that it's really important that people know what they're eating because I think that once they know, they can demand to eat something better. And I think that our food system is crucial, um, obviously, to, to our future as a, as a species um, and to our planet's future. I think we're going to need to develop more sustainable agricultural practices um, throughout the entire world um i how that's going to happen i don't know but the best case scenario is is that it does mm -hmm. um, yeah totally agreed that's great what's your best case scenario justin yeah so in, in terms of truffles i think it would in the best case obviously we figure out how to grow them just like all of the other or not all of them but most of the other culinary mushrooms where we could just grow them indoors and we don't have to worry about you know foraging and all of the the crime that goes on um out of you know out in nature out on the truffle groves and all of that um but in in general what i think for fungi is more on the cultural side of psychedelic mushrooms and that we move to a place where it's sort of normal and there's almost a rite of passage and this is one of the things when you were talking about um, going to a different age, Ryan, um, that I sort of thought about is we never used to have rites of passage or sorry, we, d we don't have rites of passage. Currently. We never we used always, to lack rites of passage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> correct. We always had uh, rites of passage for these tribal uh, communities. And, uh, I think that's such an important aspect of being sort of one with everything else and, and understanding that everything is connected. And if, modern humans sort of went through that i don't think we would have this cultural battle over whether climate change is a thing or whether mm -hmm. we should preserve nature 
or preserve the natural way of things. Um, so I would say that if the, in the best case, the culture changes around that and we can have uh, a legal structure to where people can safely consume these sorts of things, sort of like what they have in Amsterdam. Or uh, Oregon now. Where you can have... Oh, yeah. Well, in Oregon, it's for uh, psychotherapy, Medical correct? use, right. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that's good. That's a, that's a great stepping stone. I think, ultimately, it would be great uh, if we could have a controlled recreational use, sort of like there is in Amsterdam. Obviously, there, not everybody needs to be taking psychedelics. It's dangerous to some <laughs> people. But um, there, there's uh, obvious benefit to going through one of those um, experiences. Mm -hmm. And there's a, been a lot of research of how it can change people psychologically for the better. Yeah, well, I want to address the, the danger aspect because there was another study done where they had all of these people take psilocybin mushrooms and then they asked them their experience right away and then they asked them their experience like 10 years later and right away, 70% of people said they had an amazing life-changing experience. 30% of people said they did not like it. They had a bad trip. Uh -huh. But the key finding is that when they asked them years later, the 70% of people still considered it one of their most important life events that changed and improved their perceptions on their own life and on the world. And the 30% mm -hmm. who had a bad experience were not really negatively affected at all. They were just like, oh yeah, it wasn't that great. But it's not like they had any lasting negative effect. So some yeah. people may have a bad experience because they're not in the right mindset, but there's not really much danger in like something. Well, I mean, there may be in some corner So there cases, are people. But... there are people that can be predisposed to like schizophrenia and that can set them over the deep end, for example. Right. So there, yeah. there are very... Uh, clear screening processes to make sure, like, okay, that I would be safe long term. If but I compared took to this. things that are prescribed over the counter, like opioids, like it's not even in the same ballpark. Yeah. Like, or, no, or even you alcohol look at the, or cigarettes. Like, it's the toxicity of the main drug. I mean, alcohol, I think, is more dangerous than most other drugs. I mean, and then mushrooms, you don't, there's not even a lethal dose, marijuana, not even a lethal dose, mm -hmm. for example. So yeah, it's, it's a generally like physiologically safe drug to take. You're not going to die. Yeah. But if but you're it, mentally unhinged, then you probably should yeah. wait. Yeah. So yeah. So pretty much in the best case, we can change the culture around these sorts of things. And we can improve the, the cultural um, aspects of how we view each other, how we view people of other nationalities, for example, and, and just kind of have more of a, a oneness as humans, mm -hmm. as earthlings, rather than just like us versus them in, you know, every aspect of our lives. So I think it, it would just create a more peaceful world if people could, you know, go through some sort of rites of rite of passage as we did, you know, thousands of years ago. Yeah. So, what do you think for the likely case then? Most likely scenario. My likely scenario? So, it's generally positive. I think there's a lot of signs that we're moving in the right direction. 
I think Ryan's right that consumers are becoming more knowledgeable about the foods that we're eating, and we're also becoming more knowledgeable about climate change and what needs to happen to preserve our planet. However, there are still the forces of big pharma and big agro that very much want to keep their hold on these industries. And mm-hmm. big pharma does not like fungal solutions because you can't patent it, at least not currently. And mm-hmm. agricultural companies don't like mushrooms because you can just use this natural unpatented thing to fight pests rather than buying all of their chemicals that you would typically otherwise spray on all your crops. So these forces are going to fight against the Paul Stamets of the world, but ultimately I think they're going to lose out because even the U.S. government and the Department of Defense are coming to realize how much value there is in fungi. And Mm -hmm. a lot of historians say that part of the reason we won World War II, that the Allies won out over the Axis, is because we had penicillin, which is derived from mushrooms, whereas the Axis did not. So when American and British soldiers got injured, they didn't just die of infections, they got better, and then they went back out into battle. So I think as we look in the future, the ability for different civilizations to cultivate fungi and form a symbiosis so that you know, the gods of fungi and the mother earth are on the <laughs> sides of the good guys, like, or, or whatever side they're on, you know, good or bad, I guess morality is kind of irrelevant. That side's going to win out. At least all other things, you know, Keteris Paribus, all else being equal, mm-hmm. the side that, that have the right, you know, fungal allies have the upper hand in my mind. So I do think that things are right. going in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, what do you think, Ryan? Um, I uh, got disconnected for a moment. But, That's all right. What's uh, the most most likely scenario for how the future of fungi will progress? Okay, great. Um, the most likely scenario. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure what the most likely scenario is, um, and. Uh, I I fear trying to speculate and predict uh, upon it without more um, data, but I think that um, it will fall somewhere in between the two scenarios that we were discussing, which are like global disaster and downfall <laughs> and um, ideal, uh, idyllic, um, pleasurable... Uh, human interconnectedness and experience. Um, I think that we will likely see, um, you know, a lot of uh, struggles uh, just because of all the, uh, because of climate change and uh, um, Mm -hmm. scarcity like we were discussing. But I think that like the human species um, has always found a way forward. and I think that in this area, we'll also probably figure it out as well. Um, some bad things might happen along the way. but right. uh, You think there's going to be that, a, a, an increase in murders in the truffle business? Or do you think that we've sort of peaked with truffle murders? 
Um, I think we've definitely peaked on the on the Trouble Murders. Um, okay, good. I, 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 yeah, I hope that 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 there's there's no uh, there's no more violence in the trade for sure. Um, and I think that's probably a likely scenario that the that the violence um, is not an issue anymore. So, and I think that there will be. I, I think there will likely be just like general consumer awareness too, which will help help some of these things indirectly, even if there are not um, laws and regulations around it. Nice. Justin, you want to bring it home? What's your most likely scenario? Yeah, so in terms of fungi as a whole, I think that the science is really starting to um, reach the public that mushrooms are important. They're just in nature. The mycelial networks are important, and we're starting to understand how they are so critical to the health of our forests, for example, and the health of plants in general, which extends to agriculture. So all of these things, all of the science that's coming out, I think is positive. Um, I also think, so I think that's going in a positive direction. I think in terms of the, um, the psychedelic aspect, I, it's probably going to take a while before it really catches on in the U.S. in terms of recreational use, I would say, like, measured in decades, it'll be before it's recreationally really? available. Yeah, I don't... I Even think, in California and Oregon? Uh, recreationally, probably. I think... Hmm. I think I'm um, a little bit more and, optimistic there. Well, I hope you're right. <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of um, truffles... Likely, I don't think we're ever going to be able to cultivate them truly in a lab the same way and have the same flavor profile as what would be um, from a natural uh, truffle that was, you know, had a symbiotic relationship with trees and bushes and all of the the different um, organisms around it. I just I don't think it's going to be the same because of how complex the the fruiting process is for truffles. So. So Those there'll are be like the... spaceship battles over the last remaining truffle. <laughs> <laughs> like the U.S. Yep. Space Force against some other... The Russian Space Force. <laughs> yep, that's that's what I see as the likely scenario. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty much it for mine. Yeah, well, well thank you everyone for, for listening. This has been a really fascinating episode and reading The Truffle Underground by Ryan Jacobs has been very fascinating. You know, it's rare that I am, know so little about a topic going into it and then feel like I've just been let into this whole secret world that I didn't even know existed before. So if you want that experience... I would recommend that you guys uh, check out the Truffle Underground. So thank you, Ryan, for, for being on the podcast. It's been great chatting with you. I had a great time. Is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with before we head out? Yeah, I would just say as a general message, which is always what I say um, at the end of things like this, is just be very careful um, about what you're eating. Um, I think most people expect that um, if you're buying from like what is known as like an artisanal or luxury trade, I think people assume that there's like a high level of integrity. Um, 
but that's not always the case. And I think you just need to, you need to research and ask hard questions and be like the annoying patron at the restaurant or the annoying uh, customer at the grocery store and check the ingredients and um, check labels and all that. And I think if you do that, you can have a great, you can actually have a great trouble experience and a great food experience in general but if you don't do that you're probably going to be supporting something that you don't want awesome well thank you everyone for listening this has been the future of fungi and we'll see you next time what will inevitably happen the past the present is the future Hey futurists, if you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden Brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.